to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, my guest is Dr. Nancy Zimfer, Chancellor Emeritus of the SUNY System and a member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. With nearly 463,000 students in 64 colleges and universities, SUNY is the nation's largest comprehensive system of higher education. Prior to her position at SUNY, Dr. Zimfer was the president of the University of Cincinnati, where she famously fired head men's basketball coach Bob Huggins and chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She holds three degrees from The Ohio State University. As of the middle of August, we have a split in the landscape of big-time football. The medical opinions and the risk tolerance for playing football in the Power Five this fall varies greatly. The Big Ten and Pac-12 have said they are not playing any fall sports, along with nearly all of Division I, and yet the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 have said that they are. In many ways, this is a governance crisis of massive proportions for the nation's largest oversight body for college sports, the NCAA. Primarily known for running postseason championships in Divisions I, II, and III, as well as the wildly popular March Madness Tournament in men's and women's basketball, the NCAA and its president, Mark Emmert, have seemed out of their element in deciding what direction to provide when it comes to playing college sports on our campuses this fall. While providing guidance on medical issues and responding to membership concerns about eligibility and medical waivers, the NCAA has in in effect been sidelined when it comes to taking charge of what to do this fall. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zimfer. So Dr. Zimfer, welcome to the podcast. And it certainly seems clear that no one is really in charge of the NCAA. The NCAA has a president, but he seems to have little to no power over the five most influential football playing conferences. Can you tell us how that happened and why that leaves us where we are today? Well, first of all, Karen, it's Nancy, so we'll start there. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I guess what I want to say is I think the, the power of the Power Five or the Autonomous Five dwarfs what the NCAA does decide on, where they do exercise governance. And I have a few examples of that, but I think like all sort of separations, uh, it happened over a period of time, some in the 90s, some more recently, some as recently as changes in governance uh, in 2014. So the details are there, but I think it just reeled away from the mothership, Mm -hmm. from an organized intercollegiate athletic entity that was making decisions for the all, for everybody, and hopefully for the good of all. So obviously that's related to television, and the uh, ability to to gain in incredible revenues o- over time. Uh, I think the Autonomous Five, the Power Five, were making decisions that others in, in the division couldn't keep up with. So the sort of trade-off was, well, if you'll participate in some revenue allocations, we'll sort of let you go off in your own, on your own. And I don't think anybody could have imagined, although it was somewhat predictable, that with more revenues, more decisions would be made separately. And now we have an organization that's really not separate. It's half in, half out. So the Power Five are in. 
for basketball. They're in for regulations and infractions. They're in for setting academic goals. They're, they're in for other things that, that matter to the organization, but they are out for something that's really a driver and that's money. So over the weekend, the Washington Post quoted you as saying, I think we've hit the breaking point. That's what's so important about what the, what the crisis can expose and what thoughtful people with lots of experience are going to have to face in a world that, because of the very extraordinary, extraordinary television contracts, is now upside down. Can you elaborate more on that? Well, a lot has been said about COVID-19 and what happens in a crisis, and particularly this one, once a century. You know, we used to say something like once a decade, mm -hmm. and now we're dealing with something that we are wholly unprepared for and is so significant and of such magnitude, life and death, literally, uh, that it is going to change our behaviors in many, many ways. So let's start here. It's going to cause post-secondary education, a higher education to make huge adjustments, uh, not only financially and the physical presence of students on campus versus remote instruction, but who's gonna come to college? When are they gonna come to college? How are they gonna come to college? And that's what's so ironic about debating uh, whether to play football. Well, wait a minute, we, can, we can't even decide how to bring students back. And we have to remind ourselves that football and athletics in general is a subsidiary of a whole university deal. So yes, we have the pressure of the virus, but I've also heard it said it's really a dual pandemic. It is the pandemic of race, systemic racism, and nowhere is the intersection of, of race and intercollegiate athletics more obvious than right now in some of the decisions that we're trying to make. So the breaking point is this issue of a crisis and using that crisis to level set, if you will, where we're gonna go, how we're gonna go forward. So many people have so commonly said it's broken, but what comes after some recognition that it's broken? or that this virus is new and big and different, it's how we're gonna fix it. And most importantly, and we see this every day, this is an issue of leadership. What is the leadership of the organization or the bifurcated, fragmented organization gonna do about that? So it's a real opportunity for us, Karen, if we choose to use it as that. I think a lot of people, particularly in the media, have looked at, at NCAA President Mark Emmert as they want him to become some sort of football czar. And the NCAA structure is just not built that way. It's built on a collaborative, shared governance kind of model. Um, have you served in, on any of those board of directors or any of those committees so you can give us any insight on that? Well, you know, the conflict is this. In, in a couple of incidences recently, the NCAA looks like it could make a decision. In March, it made a decision about March Madness, and they made it, as I understand it, in one board meeting. Not that they didn't do a lot of prep to get there. And more recently, they issued a set of recommendations about safety, student athlete health and safety relative to reopening in the context of the pandemic and it was so clear, so clear, that divisions two and three literally shut down within 24 hours. So 
there are some things that you get to do because you are in charge and you are the governing body. Those would be good examples of that. But then there's a thing called moral authority. This is when you step up and you say, you know, I may not be able to control your every action, but I can say this. This is scary. This is threatening, threatening the life of our athletes. We're now learning more about some of the residual effects. Our best advice is don't play. So I think that's missing. So the tension here is you've got this governance authority and that only takes you so far. And that's what we're critical of. This is a house, not an order. Nobody, people are saying, nobody's running football. Well, it's being run one conference at a time until we get to the playoffs, in which case the college football playoff seems to make some collective decisions, but they're not doing it now against the kind of leadership that calls out the problem. And I guess that's what we're hungry for. Yeah, yeah. I think in a lot of ways we're hungry for that. We want somebody to tell us what we should be doing in the middle of one of the scariest things we've ever faced. Well, nobody's gonna get it right. But you do use your best judgment. And uh, it's, I know, it's difficult. I, you know, how many people have said to me, aren't you glad you're not still in the driver's seat? And I go, no, I miss the driver's seat. (laughs) (laughs) But these are tough decisions. And I think this makes another point. If we were working together collaboratively, then the, the organization could come forward and say, you know what? This was a really tough debate. But by golly, we decided together. So nobody's the enemy. It was the leadership. It was, and yes, I was on what was the Board of Governors uh, at the time, and it's been a while. uh, But I did see firsthand how decisions get made. And like any organization, you know, it's tough to get consensus. But I think uh, we, we also feel that how people vote, how people make decisions within the intercollegiate athletic structure needs to be examined as well because that's fallen apart. Just another uh, crack in the in the armor, um, as best I can see. But leadership is leadership. It is. And good leadership can be hard to find in a crisis. It really can be. But it's important that somebody step up, right? Well, and what we learned by that is when people do step up, they get acknowledged. Mm-hmm. That You get a lot of reinforcement. It may be tough and the you know, the social media may take you on, but again, the armor of working collaboratively, collectively toward a common value proposition is what we're looking for here. And, and this is where the Knight Commission is so incredibly strong. They have not veered since 1989 from the principle of student athlete education, health, safety, and success. I mean, it just rolls off your tongue. This is what we are about. And quite frankly, as a university president, this is what we are about with our entire student body. And if that's your value proposition, it's a lot easier to make decisions, even the tough ones. Absolutely. So building on that, now we have Senators Cory Booker, Richard Blumenthal, and others who have introduced something they feel is called a College Athlete Bill of Rights. And... The college athletics ecosystem has fought off a player unionization effort back in 2014 and 2015. How might this federal effort differ from that and how does it play into what the Knight Commission is doing? Well, uh, I think hours ago, 
this association of basketball coaches just announced a coalition of basketball players so that their voice could be heard. And of course, on the Knight Commission, we have very experienced student athletes giving us input. Actually, if we ever took a vote, voting on issues that uh, typically we arrive at by consensus. And I'm no stranger to student leadership. When I was at SUNY, we had 64 campus presidents of student government who all came together into one president of student government who could sit at my cabinet level meetings and input decisions even on the cost of tuition. So it can be done. And we're hearing it from our student athletes, I think emanating out of the Pac-12. And then we have other athletes saying, hashtag we wanna play, but I think they wanna play safely. And now, so I think the issue with the, the congressional involvement is that in a, in a way we welcome their insights and quite frankly, their platform. Um, but I think what we have to resolve is the issue of maintaining, preserving as best we can amateur athletics and not move ourselves so far into organized uh, voice that we end up at paper play or something that doesn't look at all like intercollegiate athletics. So uh, I'm interested, we all are, certainly the Knight Commission is in this Bill of, of Student Rights and trying to advise and trying to be helpful. And I hope that in the end, we find that happy place where we can give more voice to student athletes now more than ever and, and find a way to do it and maintain our commitment to amateur athletics. So you've been an active member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics for a number of years. Why did you decide to get involved and what role have you played in this organization? And then can you tell us more about the folks who are involved? Well, it's ironic. I came to Ohio State as a freshman uh, and no, nobody could dispute their interest in collegiate athletics. And I left 30 years later to become a university president. And um, given my athletic experience serving on the athletic council, I remember chairing the search committee for one of the athletic directors. Uh, I carried that knowledge to UW-Milwaukee, Division I basketball. And then of course, uh, in Cincinnati, I had quite an experience there. And that was a full on D1 Big East uh, conference. So I, I learned a lot, hired coaches, uh, had a lot of opportunity to mold the, uh, just to have some influence over the athletic program, uh, quite a bit as president actually. And then at SUNY, I had everything. I had all divisions and everything you could imagine. So when I was invited uh, to serve, and I think Britt Kerwin's hand was in that, I was uh, happy to do so because I had had the NCAA experience. And I knew a bit about what I was joining, but not as much as I know now about the history of this, this organization that uh, considers, I think people consider a thought leadership group we make recommendations, we give advice, but we study, 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 and that's about what we're uh, about to do at this time in our history. Uh, of course, we have current presidents, former presidents, we have athletic directors, we have student athletes, we have uh, faculty representatives. Uh, in there are 
lawyers and people who who can understand some of the complications of the litigation that's going on. And then, of course, we have representation uh, from uh, baseball and football. Uh, Paul Tagliabue, uh, of course, has incredible experience and wisdom, I would say. I would underscore that word. He's so wise. And my colleague, uh, it, Jonathan Mariner, with uh, CFO of baseball. So Jonathan is chairing a finance committee, looking, of course, at expenditures and intercollegiate athletics. I'm chairing this governance and, and structure committee. And then uh, two people uh, chairing the academic uh, leadership, out of which is coming the name, image, and, and likeness. And um, everybody working as hard as they can. Um, I so respect. Uh, Carol Cartwright and Arnie Duncan, and of course, Amy Perko. I mean, I could go on and on, but I've, I found a niche there, an interest where I think leadership and governance go hand in glove, and so it feels comfortable, although incredibly challenging, and I never feel like I know enough to speak, but together we represent quite a, a coalition of the committed, and uh, we're busy working on... Um, what might be some solutions to this breaking point? Uh, I think the uh, sponsorship of the Knight Foundation made it very clear uh, at the end of last year, 2019, December, that we needed to step in in an important strategic way. We launched these, uh, the committees existed, but more aggressively the work of the committees and in, my, in the committee I chair with a great deal of help, might I say, um, we're we're doing some survey research, we're interviewing and doing small group sessions. Uh, we uh, have scoured the literature uh, with your help and others to see what our past could tell us about our future. Of course, we're working uh, closely, watching and, and helping where we can, congressional dialogue. We hope by October to uh, begin to set a table be more explicit about what we found, what the options are. I love the fact that we've really solicited opinion broadly and, you know, boy, have we gotten it. Um, and that's from individuals who take the time to write and speak their own mind to our, our collective data from the survey. We'd like to fall into the pattern that takes us all to the convention in January and hope that, um, the redesign of our intercollegiate governance structure and everything that goes with that will be a huge topic. I think that's going to be very fascinating. Now, you mentioned um, Jonathan Mariner, the former CFO of Major League Baseball, who was a committee chair as you are a, a committee chair. Exactly. And the two of you co-authored an article for MarketWatch.com, which is available via the link on the cover of this podcast. Tell us about why you both decided to write this and the concerns you have for college athletics at this moment in time? Well, the way um, the Knight Commission is structured at this time to do its work sort of looks like a Venn diagram. So it is that commitment to education, health, safety, and success, which would be under the umbrella of academic and wellness for student athletes with uh, financial uh, and expenditure issues with governance and structure. So in a Venn diagram, they all come together and somehow magically, not magically, but with a lot of hard work in October, we will have uh, an integrated uh, set of recommendations. 
So in this particular front, having just lived through name, in, image, and likeness, and you're well aware that we did uh, produce guidelines in that regard, um, I watched how that happened and how much hard work went into that. And I go, wow, these people are really committed. These are saints, Walt and Chris, the chair of the, that uh, committee. And then it became our turn. So working together, but also working independently till we can get to a point. Jonathan and I, and I thought that um, with the interest of Market Watch, this would be a good time to sort of lay out what our plans were. So in one sense, it's all about who's in charge. But it's also, as you know, it's about these out of control expenditures. Uh, what are we going to do when coaches' salaries are so out of the norm? People often say highest paid public employee in any state and where where a flagship resides. What are we going to do with the arms race, the facilities race that we've talked about for years, but it just keeps going? And I think uh, what's interesting to me, living a little bit more closely to this, is those uh, institutions in the group of five, which are different from the power five, get the effect of the facilities race and the salaries because in every sense of the word, they have to look like, they have to play like, they have to be competitive like, but in the end, they don't get the revenues. So it's causing a crisis all the way up and down the line. And I think this is a, a feeling that not only institutions or conferences in D1, but in divisions two and three, because it has a way, everything that happens to athletics happens and affects every division, whether you're on the field or not. You suffer from bad news. Yes, you gain from good news, but you know they go hand in hand. So um, I think what we're going to try to do is, uh, Jonathan and I, lay out the financial fractures, lay out the, the vision and the, and the value proposition as we did, and then begin to talk about what might, what might work. So that's why we wanted to set the table with this article. Uh, one of the things we're hearing is people talk about the expense of travel if, if you're not in the Power Five and you're cross-country to play in your conference uh, that costs a lot of money. So we're hearing about federations, I guess is the way it's often referred to, but where we might create sub-conferences for different sports and that kind of thing. So our uh, invitation to Market Watch was let's begin to set the table because October is right around the corner. And happily in this podcast, we're setting the table again with you, Karen. This is our our plan, we're happy to have more people comment on what we're saying and what's appearing in these various articles because we'd like as much input as possible. Yeah, that's great, that's great. So you've had this incredible career as the president or chancellor at three significant institutions. What have you learned and what advice would you give to presidents who either are serving or want to serve at this level, as well as senior leaders who aspire to become you know, chancellors, presidents, about how college athletics works. What do you wish you would have known when you started that you know now? Well, in some respects, almost everything. <laughs> you know, when, when I left Ohio State to become the chancellor at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I'm sure there was just a lot I, I didn't know. But I also learned to watch leadership and to... Uh, mimic, if you will, uh, that which I respected in leaders I had served and 
I served for a lot of presidents and provosts in the 30 years I was at Ohio State. I mean, part of it, I was an undergraduate student, so I'm not that old. But I, I did watch, I did learn. I came to Ohio State when Woody Hayes was coach, for heaven's sakes. So, um, and uh, ironically, now I'm uh, leading uh, an institute for people who want to be presidents. So I can't say enough about how important leadership is. Uh, that is uh, what I have enjoyed the most, is knowing that I have the mantle of leadership and then trying to live up to it. Uh, because leadership is a word that really uh, modifies how you behave as, an, as a manager. You're going to lead or you're going to manage, you know, all that that people talk about in leadership theory. But in my leadership theory, which I have honed over the years, uh, I think vision is really, really important. In fact, I think it's, it's everything. And the fact that we are so focused on student education, health and safety, and student success, see, to me, that's the vision. That is the vision. Now, the key is getting everybody to agree, to support, and to amplify that vision. So that's another thing I would say to prospective presidents. You are not the singular voice of the university. You are the orchestrator. You are the maestro. You have to bring out the best in your organization. And that's why, to me, it has always been really important to see athletics as embedded in the whoop and warp of university. I remember when we did hire Andy Geiger, I was the dean of education, and he was going to be the AD, and everybody was talking about how we needed to build an education facility for the athletes. And I said, Andy, you and I are going to do this together, and we're going to do that wonderful academic support facility but we're gonna do it for everybody, student athletes and student students alike. And that's that notion that it all goes together. So I think it's vision. I think uh, it's getting people to, to agree and commit to that vision and then acting in a way that is accountable and disciplined, measurable, public and transparent. And probably the greatest mistake anybody could make is to hide the business. How many times do we have to learn over and over again that transparency is the answer? It may be bad. You may have to apologize. You may have made a mistake. Some of the most endearing behaviors of university presidents may just be saying, I didn't get this right, but I had to do it for this reason. And trust me, I've been through that. So I know. Well, let's leave it here. Nancy, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to visit not only with me, but with the folks who uh, listen to the podcast. I think you've given us an awful lot to think about in the days and weeks ahead. Well, it's my privilege, Karen. I'm, I'm delighted and I too am learning so much every day, almost every hour. So thanks for including me. You're welcome.